Good morning. Thank you, Jay, for leading us in worship this morning. I understand that uh, we ha- there's a, a lot of echo in my voice, isn't there? Uh, you may be, the f- for the first time, attending church today, or you may have been coming for as long as you can remember. We have people here at Calvary that have uh, been generations coming to church here, and, and that's pretty cool. But uh, if... if I'm going to be turning to several passages in the Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, what I want to do is encourage you to take that card in the pew in front of you and just write your name and address on that and come and hand that to me after the service. I want to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word if you don't have one, and we'll make sure to get that to you. Failure is a part of life. Can I get an amen? A begrudging amen. <laughs> ah, why does it have to be that way? Uh, the first time I went to buy a car was an epic fail. Uh, the salesman, I was, uh, I think, 20 years old. I was in college. I needed some wheels. So I went to this used car dealership, and this wicked man came out with slick hair, and he had a look in his eye like, Hungry predator, okay? And I was the prey, and he ate me for lunch. He sold me a 1986 Chevy Caprice Classic big boat car in brown. Uh, I, because I fell under the spell, was excited that uh, as I left the dealership that day, I think I got car. It's been washed. Who knows what's under the hood, but I got a car. And so I drove it uh, up to Baptist Bible College where I was uh, at school at that time. And Amy and I were dating. And um, so I was excited to show her the car. I really was. And um, so uh, when she first finally saw the car, when I finally got to show her, she said, that's what you got? And instantly the spell was broken. And I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? This is a big mistake. What a, what a failure. So what um, I didn't, t- t- I don't know if Amy even knows this, the very next day I actually took the car back to the dealership and tried to get my money back. Didn't work. You know, they don't do that. That's part of their business. It's like, you know, you bought it, you own it. Sorry, sucker, it's yours. And uh, so, I learned a lot that day. It was a failure that I hoped to never repeat. You see, um, failure is something that we can either grow from or we can shrink as a result of that failure. Uh, It all depends on how we deal with it in the aftermath Um, It also has to do with uh, the potential for failure on the front end of something. Because many people, uh, because of the fear of failure, don't attempt anything that they think they might not do well. And because of that, they don't grow as well. This morning, I want to talk to you about how failure can be a catalyst for growth in our lives. 
in a book that John Ortberg wrote called If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat. He says that we cannot grow in our spiritual lives unless we're willing to fight the fear of failure and accept it as the price tag of growth. A couple of weeks ago at the Calvary Christian School retreat, I delivered a series of messages on water walking. And this was a large part of the theme. It's probably why it came to mind for this morning's message. So today I want to talk to you not about the, I want to talk to you about this subject not the way the self-help books would in Barnes & Noble, but the way the Bible would talk about it uh, and, and talk about it in a spiritual sense. So when I searched the scriptures, I uncovered, and there are probably many more, but I, I wanted to cap it at five, five characteristics of those who fail well. Failing forward is, is another way to say it, to steal a phrase from John Maxwell. But if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15. This is the well-known story of the prodigal son. And uh, in this parable that Jesus taught, uh, it's a fictional story with a spiritual point. There's a, a young man who... Uh, is in line for a good inheritance. And in that culture, uh, the, the way it works is that, uh, you know, just like in, in any, most cultures, you know, uh, parents pass down things to their children in a, in a will. And the way that kids would get access to whatever it is that's in the will is for the parent or the parents to die, and then that would become available to them. Well, this son did not want to wait that long. He wanted it sooner. And so he took the money, he ran, he blew it all on wild living as fast as he possibly could. Got some friends, quote-unquote friends in the, in the process who left him when the money ran out. And when he was penniless, he ended up taking a job because uh, he was starving, feeding pigs on a farm. Now, as it was sitting there, it says in verse 17, it says he came to himself. In other words, he realized what a terrible situation he was in. And it says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy, but called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The first step to failing forward is to own your failures, to own them. The son who failed said this, I have sinned. I, he, he's pointing at himself. He's taking this as a personal responsibility and he says, I have sinned. Do you know how rare, I mean, in my experience, the phrase, I have sinned, is just about as rare a phrase as I can think of. Coming from my own lips or from any of the lips of anybody that I talk to. Who amongst us regularly or even seldom goes to other people and say, I have sinned? Uh, this young man 
he is willing to come right out and call it what it really is, and that is owning his failure. We hear things instead like, oops. Um, and then we hear other kinds of things like excuses. It's not really my fault. Uh, well, if you hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have, you know, and, and, and blame shifting, all kinds of things. Uh, I love Calvin and Hobbes comics. I love how a six-year-old can provide such wisdom for life. Bill Watterson, I think, was one of the most clever comic artists. And uh, this is one that I think speaks well to this point. Calvin's walking along with Hobbes, and he says, Nothing I do is my fault. Now, let's be, if you know the comic at all, you know Calvin is always doing the wrong, getting into trouble and mischief and things. My family is dysfunctional, and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive, functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept my responsibility for my actions. Now, what is Watterson trying to do here? He's, he's actually poking fun at us through a six-year-old for the way adults talk, the way we think, the way we try to spin our mistakes. But the prodigal son doesn't do any of that. He doesn't try to put a uh, rosy-colored glass on, on, on his, his errors. He just lays it all out. It's like, not only have I messed up, the consequence of that is, is you probably would be justified in not even calling me your son, but would you take me back would you at least let me eat with the hired servants? I want you to notice also something that the son acknowledges here. It's not just that he's willing to say that he has sinned. He's willing to go the extra step and acknowledge the extent of the damage. This is uh, kind of like us uh, in an apology saying, I'm sorry that I hurt you and that the result of that pain is that it caused you these problems. And, that, and, and he goes in and he's acknowledging the extent of it. It's not just a sin against his father, but he even goes further. He's saying it's a sin against God himself. Every sin is ultimately a sin against God. God. And not until we're ready to face that fact head on are we really in the position uh, of failing forward spiritually. So this morning, do we need to just stop right there and open up the altar uh, and, and start playing some music? Are we in need of any repentance this morning? Do we need to acknowledge that we have been going in the wrong direction, following a different Savior, following uh, the sinful desires of the flesh. Each of us can get off track. Each of us can wound another and ultimately wound the heart of God. But that is the business we need to get to doing if we're going to be failing forward. Everybody fails, but not everybody grows from it. The first step is to do that. Excuse me, that. Number two, 
People who fail forward bring their failures to God and repent. And that's kind of what I was talking about here. Uh, it's interesting that Jay had us read Psalm 51. I don't know if uh, he, he saw my notes or, or if, if that's just something that God prompted him to have us read. But it's a beautiful picture of what true repentance looks like. Now, the prodigal son was right to go to his father. He was going to attempt a personal apology. And he took the first step towards solving the problem and correcting it and restoring the relationship. Uh, I find that what a lot of people do is that when uh, somebody wrongs them or they wrong somebody else, they sit back and wait. They want the other party to take the first step and come to them. In this situation, it would have been akin to him sitting in the pig's eye saying, ah, man, I wonder how my dad feels about me off in this faraway land. I wish he'd just show up and just wrap his arms around me and tell me everything's okay. And just waiting there and waiting there and waiting there. And then, but this young man decides to take the initiative and to go back. Now, there are some long roads you can travel, but I imagine that the road that he traveled on foot to get back to his father's house was very long that day, if maybe not more than one day, maybe several, thinking along the way about all that he had done, all that he had messed up, and how his father must feel about it. Uh, over the years, I've heard story upon story of good friendships dissolving. It's not something major, but somebody gets offended. The other party knows it, but because nobody takes the initiative, nobody's willing to address the problem, fear of confrontation, uh, fear of exposure, pride get in the way, and then instead of fixing it, they just decide it's easier to just let the relationship go. This young man, he didn't use the word if in his apology. If statements should never land in an apology. He didn't blame shift. And he didn't make excuses. None of, well, you could have told me no when I asked you for the money. Why didn't you, why didn't you tell me no? None of that. John Maxwell, the pastor-turned-leadership expert, he said that we can fail our way to success but never excuse our way to success. Nobody grows by making excuses. Are you an excuse maker or are you a failure owner? Does it depend on the situation? Does it depend on who it is you have to deal with? In the text, notice that the son didn't say anything about personally addressing his failure to God. Look at verse 20. It says, And he rose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What a remarkable thing that we see the father do there. 
I want to stop and just ask us, do we at Calvary have the reputation of embracing those that fail? Is that our, is that what we're known for? If, if you were to publicly mess up, to sin, and the rest of the people in here would find out about it, would you be willing to come to church? What would that say about who we are as, as a church? They all know my sin. I don't think I can go there. Why would that cause a... My hope and prayer is that Calvary would be the kind of church that would see somebody who has made a terrible failure come and find embrace here rather than judgment and that they would know that even in advance. But the son said to him, after this embrace, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cut him off at that point. He didn't even let him get the rest of it out. But what I see that's interesting here about the son is that he, he does acknowledge that he has sinned before God, but he's telling his earthly father that. It doesn't say anywhere in here that he has uh, you know, expressed vertical repentance. There's horizontal repentance because we do sin against other people. But what we find lacking in the text here, and maybe it's just not stated, and maybe just Jesus didn't feel like it uh, uh, merited inclusion in this particular parable, but I think it's sometimes overlooked that vertical repentance is really, really important in the growth process after failure. And in this guy's case, it would have gone something like this. Lord, I'm sorry. I, I've sinned against you and against my father. I treated him like garbage. I treated him like I wanted him dead. I, I just wanted his stuff. I was very selfish. And I know that that breaks your heart and your law. Will you forgive me? In the Christian's life, especially those of us who want to fail forward, those kinds of conversations with God need to happen. Is that how your prayers are sometimes? King David is the extraordinary example that we read about in Psalm 51. I'm not going to ask you to turn there because we saw it on the screen earlier. But in verse 3 it says, I know my transgression in my sin is ever before me. It's like and when I look in the mirror, I see myself this way. I can't see past my mistakes and it's eating me up inside. Lord, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. And when he says against you and you only have I sinned, he's acknowledging not that he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and the, his unborn son, because 
He certainly has. Uh, we read elsewhere in the Bible that we can sin against other people. But what he's saying, and I think the Net Bible gets it really well worded here. It says, against you, you above all have I sinned. Now, the clear implication is that when we do evil, we participate in evil, yes, we hurt them, and that doesn't minimize the fact that we need to repent to them, but ultimately, because we break God's law, we need to go to him. Let's take it a step further, too, because um, I think this is cathartic. It's like self-cleansing spiritually. Not to just say, hey, God, I know I broke your law, but to acknowledge, you know, Ephesians 4.30 tells us that it, our sin grieves the heart of God. It grieves him. When I picture God weeping over my sin, that changes me. It makes me want to avoid it. It makes me want to live a different life. And I want to grow from my failures so that when the next opportunity comes along in a similar situation, I'm at a higher plane and I don't fail. Okay, number three. We're moving right along here. People who fail forward refuse to identify as a failure and accept forgiveness. You know how much of a difference, it's an enormous difference between the ideas of saying, I failed, I sinned, and I am a failure. There's a profound difference there. On one hand, you have some action that was wrong. On the other hand, the person has adopted the identity of a failure. You know, we have somebody over here. Oh, they're um, a pharmacist. Oh, somebody over here. Oh, they're a teacher. I'm a failure. And that is something that the devil wants us to adopt. I believe that's what happened with Judas. He had the most enormous failure in the entire Bible. Yet, could something better have come out of it had he not identified himself as a failure. He went out and he killed himself. Failure can be devastating to us. And those of us who do not see the available mercy and grace that we read about in Psalm 51 are people that can get stuck in it. And it's a rabbit hole that you can't get out of. Students that I talked to and I've observed over the last couple of decades feel, I think, an enormous amount of pressure to get top scores on standardized tests, to do exceptionally well in athletics, and all these things that are necessary for getting scholarships to get into some good school. Culture tells them that if they're not a success by the age of 25, that it probably won't ever come, which is garbage. But that's what they're getting fed, and we can easily buy into that. And so when those good scores don't come, when the good achievements don't come, when the scholarship doesn't come, the students can easily adopt that mentality of being a failure. And so parents, a word of caution, if I might. How you handle the mistakes of your children or grandchildren will have a massive impact on how they perceive themselves as people. Will they deal well with failure as adults? 
Many of them will not deal well with failure as adults because they have not been taught by you or anyone else in their life how to deal with that well. So don't withdraw from your kids when they make mistakes. All right? Like the father who runs down the road. Run to your kids when they make mistakes. Don't get aggressive with them. In the case of the son coming down the road, the father needed to lecture nothing because the son was already keenly aware of how much he failed. If your children are going to fail forward, you have to consider, I think, the example of this parable and, I would say, the example of Jesus with Peter. In John chapter 21, if you have your Bible, again, I'd invite you to turn there. This is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. In John, by the time we get to John chapter 21, Peter had failed spectacularly again. Uh, and we have several cases where he failed publicly and massively in the Bible. Um, Peter is the kind of guy that uh, has been described as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. Uh, he was always saying things and then regretting it later, and putting his foot in his mouth. But, but Peter uh, was the only guy that got out of the boat. Peter was the one that had the great confession. And Peter was... The, so, so Peter and failure had this unique relationship. And eventually, though, it caught up to him. Uh, because when he failed in the courtyard and he denied Jesus three times, that rooster crowed, Jesus and Peter's eyes met. It tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, I don't know how you interpret a grown man crying. But Peter has always seemed to be kind of that rough and tumble, you know, uh, blue collar kind of guy that you would never see with any kind of emotional uh, uh, attachment to his sleeve. But here's a man weeping because of his failure. And it rocked him so much that even after Jesus had appeared to the disciples, it seems that Peter felt like his failure had put an end to his growth. Had, had, and so what he did there, is he, he says in verse 3, he says in John 21, he says, I'm going fishing. Throughout the three years he was with Jesus, the text would seem to indicate that Peter left his nets in the hall closet. Uh, Jesus had told them he would make them fishers of men, but after his failure, instead of learning from that mistake and growing from it, he decided to retreat into an area of comfort, something he was familiar with, where he thought that he was kind of a success. Some, this is something I know how to do. I, I, no more of this stepping out into the unknown. I'm, I'm going to stick with what I know. That's the death of growth in a person's life when they retreat to their comfort zone and stay there. Unfortunately, 
If we're going to continue to grow, we have to keep stepping out. And whenever we step out, the potential for failure is always going to be there. And this one just hurt too bad. And Peter decided to go fishing. And here's where I want us to see our interconnectedness. This is so important. I've been kind of having us look at this from the perspective of the person who fails. And how we need to work on our own hearts and how we need to see our failure. But I think it's also important for us to look at this from the perspective of others being around us. And you may know somebody in your life right now who has failed spectacularly. Have you reached out to them? Uh, have, have, you, have you gone and tried to help in any way? It could be uh, somebody in your family. It could be one of your children. It could be somebody else that you know that has gone through the ringer. And, and, and here Jesus comes and he takes the initiative and comes to the failing person to lift them up. And that's what I love about Jesus. He's always doing that kind of things. And we should be looking to Jesus' example. And, and, and let's take a look a little bit further in the text. As we look down through this, we see that they were out fishing and Jesus comes. He comes. And then he gives them the invitation to come get some food. Hey guys, I got the Chipotle. Let's go. Come on. And Peter loves Chipotle so much that he jumps into the, the lake with all his clothes on and, and starts swimming to shore. He's the first one there. And, uh, and, and, and so I, I love Jesus and, and how he is so hospitable to those who have made mistakes. That should be such an encouragement to us in our failures. Uh, so what did he do with Peter? Well, he didn't call him out in front of the rest of the disciples. It, the, the feeling I get from the text is they, they had their meal, they all ate their fill, and then Jesus addresses Peter. And it, it tells us that, the, I love the way Jesus does it. You know, Peter denied Jesus three times. That fact was not lost on anyone. But Jesus three times asked Peter, do you love me? And then he asked him to do something. And by the time Peter hears that the third time, he gets a little bit exasperated. Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus, again, gently, he's getting him to expose the wound, right? Because we kind of wall ourselves off in our pain. He exposes the wound. Jesus doesn't, uh, whitewash it. We're, we're acknowledging there's a failure here, but we're, we're bringing this out in the open so that we can deal with it. Because when we deal with it, that's when we can grow. And Jesus is not the kind of person to just say, ah, let's let bygones be bygone, bygones. Let's just not talk about it at all. He brings it up. Same with the woman caught in adultery. Where are your accusers? Go 
and sin no more. He's acknowledging there was failure there, but he's not condemning them as irredeemable because of it. So let me ask us this question. When, when, when people fail in our lives, do they get second chances? If somebody breaks your trust, do you give them another opportunity to earn it back? Or are you the kind of person that's kind of a one-and-done kind of person? I don't think that's a Christian way to live. All right, number four. Those who fail forward learn from their experiences of failure. They learn. In other words, they do better than King Saul did in the Old Testament. You know his story well. Many of you know his story well. He was the first king of Israel and in 1 Samuel 13, he messed up royally. He was waiting for Samuel to come to make a sacrifice, got impatient, and decided to do it on his own. Samuel shows up, tells him that he messed up, and did he grow from that? Did he learn? No, he did not. In fact, he became a brooding, vindictive, petty man. Uh, he did have some minor military victories, but what he never learned from that mistake was to obey the voice of the Lord. And so the Lord rejects him as king in chapter 15, which causes Saul to live in constant paranoia, and he died fearful and alone in battle after having watched his sons get slaughtered right in front of him. Now, I don't want to live like that. How would his story possibly have been different if he had learned from his family? What if he had been teachable? A pastor attended a seminar taught by a very successful person who was very upfront about his failures and how he had messed up throughout his life. And the pastor was very struck by this. He was impressed. And afterwards, he went up to try to talk to the gentleman and uh, when he got an opportunity, he asked a question. He said, if you had, could go back and change any one of those failures, if you had a do-over in any one of those one, uh, failures, which one would you take the do-over? The man thought for a minute, and he said, I wouldn't do any of them over because I've learned from all of them. And if I didn't have that learning experience, I wouldn't be who I am today. That perspective on failure is what I want to have. I want to learn from my mistakes. I hate making mistakes. But what's worse is not attempting things in which I could possibly fail. And what's even worse than that is not learning from them. So that I keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. That's too painful. I don't, I don't want to live that way. I've been helping to coach Calvary's soccer this fall for the boys. And uh, yesterday we had a game. After the game, I said to the boys, uh, how does this failure feel? And, it's, and it's, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Because it stinks to fail, to, to lose in a game. We were up two to nothing, and we let them come back and win. 
And they all were kind of dejected after the game. And I said, it's good to feel that disappointment when you fail. Because if that means that it mattered. That means that you, you cared whether you won or lost. And that is, that's a good sign. But what can we learn from this? We want to grow, right? We're young. We're learning. We don't want to adopt the mentality that we're, we have no potential. Because that's not the path of growth. And so we're working on it. All right, we're trying to take the long view of Calvary soccer. Isn't it great that the path to growth is always uphill? It's never downhill. Always, always a push and a grind to growth. Um, now, it would be easier for us to take the four points that I've just mentioned. And to conclude, with all the self-help gurus, that success was in, is within our power to grasp. All we have to do is work the formula. I'm not trying to give you a formula for success that you can do in your own power. In the realm of spiritual growth, our success is not something we can actually take credit for. Those who attempt great things for God and learn great spiritual wisdom, they have a secret that they know. And that secret is that we can't take any more credit for the progress we've made than Al Gore can take for inventing the internet. None! It's just not... That, that joke went over better in the first service. <laughs> um, some of you might wonder, like, wait, he didn't? uh uh-huh. But Jesus is the one that gets the credit. And, and that's the fifth point. And then we will conclude things here. Those who fail forward understand that it's Jesus' success that overcomes our failures. And I want to show you this. I don't have it for the screen, but Colossians chapter 2, if you wouldn't mind turning there. You know, this... The message isn't a call for any self-salvation projects. Jesus made it pretty clear in John chapter 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Speaking of things of spiritual value. It's the secret of the vine and the branches. We are the branches. He is the vine. Life comes through the vine. The power to succeed and grow spiritually comes through the vine. If we think on our own that we don't need the vine for whatever it is that we're trying to do, we're sadly mistaken. But he has won the victory for us over our sin and failures. I love how Paul says it here. Look in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and following. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, he's talking to those in the church now who have come to faith in Christ and have uh, repented of their sins and cast themselves at the foot of the cross and ask God to redeem them through Jesus Christ. These are people in the church. These are people who have been adopted into the family of God. It says, you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paraphrase, we are spiritually incapable of self-improvement on our own. God made us alive by nailing our sin to the cross and winning that decisive victory. Our improvement, our growth, our ultimate success and sanctification is nothing we will ever have caused to boast about. All our crowns eventually end at the feet of Jesus. I don't know about you, but that makes me bold, uh, or more bold, knowing that failure and growth go together and that God isn't just looking for an excuse to condemn me. You know, as long as I'm still breathing, I have an opportunity to grow. As long as I'm on this earth, I can attempt things. I can mess them up. But then in messing them up, I can learn. And then in learning, I can grow. You're never too old to grow, and you're never too young to grow in your faith. It's all a cycle. And we just keep going to a higher level in the cycle. So the question I want to leave you with this morning, as we close, is are you attempting in your life right now spiritually where there is a good chance of failure? Are you stepping out in any, into anything unknown? Or are you solidly and comfortably locked in your comfort zone? If you've been in the same holding pattern for years, I've heard it said several times that we make a mistake when we think that, the, that there are three conditions we can be in. We could be growing, or we could be shrinking, or we could be somewhere in between. There is no in between. If you're not growing, you are shrinking. There, you, you can't arrive at a certain level that's okay and just stay there. You will fall off. It's going to be either growth or shrinking away. Where are you? Are you growing in your faith? Can you say, I'm, by God's grace, I'm not who I was last year at this time? I've developed. I've become stronger. The failures have made me different person, better God is showing me things. What is God teaching you right now as you live life? If you are answering that question, yes, I am. I, I, I'm, I, am I feel like I am growing. Well, keep at it. Keep, don't, don't ever get complacent. Right? Failure could be just around the corner. Make them, make them good misses and not bad ones. In the end, Paul, in uh, Philippians, 
has some amazing... Paul was, of all the people in the Bible, Paul was probably the most keenly aware of the idea of failing forward. He was constantly pressing for things. In, in Philippians chapter 3, I'll finish with these words. Verse 12, it says, Not that I have already obtained this, all right, the ultimate pinnacle of spiritual perfection, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. I'm not going to wallow in my failures and I'm not going to rest on my laurels because of my trophies. All of that, all right? He sees in himself potential for growth still and in that potential he's forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. He's saying, don't get complacent. Make growth a priority in your life. Don't fall back on your laurels. Don't sit back in your comfort zone. Let's keep reaching for things that God would have us to grow in. That's the sanctification process. And thanks be to God for the fact that he goes along with us and empowers us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I um, you know me. You know me better than I know myself. You know that I'm the kind of person that will walk away from this message and think about all the words I should have said differently and how I failed. I tend to be kind of hard on myself. I, I don't come to you when I I, I, don't, I don't address you and talk about my sin as well as I should I want uh, I, I want to give excuses those are always around me and Lord I pray that I would live with a better sense of how gracious and how merciful you are. You want to be with me like you were with Peter. And I forget that. I'm sorry. Lord, I know there are people here this, this morning because we all fall short in many ways fall short of your glory that 
to be reminded how to deal with our failures. And Lord, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but Lord, I pray that what I've said this morning will move people closer to you again. No more excuses. Lord, if we're not growing, that's, that's wrong. We're sorry. I pray that you would lift us up. Get us back to following your son to a higher plane. Make growth a characteristic of Calvary Baptist Church. Not just in knowledge of the scriptures, but in character and wisdom and grace and love. And in this wonderful, wonderful characteristic of forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray.